Hi everyone, welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rorkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we'll be talking about some October releases. I feel like there have been so many movies this past month and that mm-hmm. I've like been to the theater like three times a week. I don't think that's normal. <laughs> <laughs> this is always the time of year where movie going just starts ramping up. We're getting ready for Oscar season. Mm-hmm. I think the releases are getting stronger in some cases or maybe just more interesting. So I'm excited to talk through <laughs> some of these today and give our recommendations for whether or not we think people should see these or if they'll be nominated for Oscars. Yeah, it's a little bit of everything coming out, like even some documentaries are out there. So I'm just trying to see like as much as I can. Today we'll be talking about six movies. So those are Titan, No Time to Die, Mass, The Last Duel, Halloween Kills, and The French Dispatch. Not to step on our conversation, but which one of these was your favorite? Ooh. You want messy or you want real? No, just favorite. Like, if you could watch one of these again or, like, have your first time viewing experience over again, which one would you pick? I would see No Time to Die again. I thought <laughs> you were going to so see Halloween Kills. I thought I really was like... Oh. It was very close. <laughs> what would yours be? Mine would also be No Time to Die. I had so much fun Ooh. seeing this. I really, really loved it. So I'm excited to talk about it. It's a great ride. Yeah, I'm excited to chat about it later. But first off, T10. Description here. Following a series of unexplained crimes, a father is reunited with his son who has been missing for 10 years. And that is surely one way to describe this movie. I, When I saw this description, which is being used everywhere, I was like, okay, that's that's interesting. That's a way to look at it, I suppose. That description doesn't start until about halfway into the movie, but mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> Not like a girl has a tragic car accident and has... What do they do to her? She just has surgery? Yeah, she has surgery and they just put a titanium plate in her skull. Like, that would be enough? Yeah. Then you're like, why? What happens? What is interesting about this? Mm-hmm. I feel like the whole father reuniting with his son could mean a very, very different thing and attract a different kind of audience. If Absolutely. you haven't seen the trailer, <laughs> if you don't know who Julia de Cornau is or Raw, like that could be very misleading and probably mm-hmm. why the audience rating is so, so low. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? If you hear like Palm Door winner... And you just see all of these like awards on mm-hmm. the website for the movie. And then you see this description. You might be imagining something sort of like Belfast. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not what this movie is at all. But it's interesting because the description <laughs> that Julia has used and that was used at Cannes is super different. It's vague Ooh. in a different way, but it also like tells you kind of everything you need to know once you've seen the movie. All that it is, and it's just Titan, and then it's like a definition, like a dictionary definition, a metal highly resistant to heat and corrosion with high tensile strength alloys. So Titan was directed by Julia de Cornell and stars Agathe Roussel and Vincent London. How did you feel about Titan? I really liked it. I think that there's a lot of stuff that's happening in this film that I have just never seen before or never really thought about, not only with the story and with the acting, but with the filmmaking. Julia clearly Mm -hmm. has 
a command over her camera and her vision that's really impressive and very unique. There were certain tricks they were doing with the sound and with the editing that really took my breath away. And when Alexia, who is our main character, when I was watching her, especially throughout the beginning and how she was framed and in following shots, I thought a lot of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which I think is one of my favorite Fincher movies. But the way that she brings in gender and dysphoria into this movie is something I really have never seen before. And I think it's clear she's influenced by people like Claire Denis and David Cronenberg. But here, I think she is tapping into something that is like fully new. And I love the commentary on cars, especially in culture. Men desire automobiles, whether that is like sexually, like in this movie with Mm -hmm. Alexia, or whether it's just looking at a beautiful car and saying, I need to purchase that, I need to drive that. They do have a sort of connection to cars. And Alexia, even as a child, in this opening scene where we see her get into this accident and her head hits the window, being the catalyst for this surgery that affects her, you see her fascination with a car as a piece of machinery and as something that she feels this deep connection with, Mm -hmm. which I thought was really cool. This is very much a movie that if you didn't know who it was made by, you would probably assume it would be made by a man. And this is going to contrast with how I feel about The Last Duel, because knowing that this movie is made by Julia, I mean, Raw was also a mind-blowing experience because it's just so unexpected and out there in concept and vision. And it's just, yeah, not something I had seen before. So here it's just as shocking and just as masculine in a way. So I love that she's playing with gender here, Mm -hmm. gender expression. Alexia, she's this very steadfast, blank character in a way. But she's also hiding her gender a lot of the time. And that Mm -hmm. just made me think so much during this movie. Julia had said in an interview that she wanted to create a character that nobody would relate to. But you're still trying to put yourself in her shoes and think, why is she doing this? Mm -hmm. You know, not only trying to disguise herself as this man who she's clearly not like, but she's pushing herself to such an extreme end. Mm-hmm. in hiding this oil dripping baby inside of her <laughs> baby and its sibling <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think without spoiling what happens i really like how the story does evolve from a structure that's similar to a lot of thrillers i think that we get despite the differences in theme and character but a story where a character is just committing a lot of crimes and can't stop and has to be on the run and has to get away because they're going to get caught. It flips at the halfway point to being a much more emotional story and one that becomes oddly, at least to me, watching it tender. And I didn't expect that. And it is a shift for you in the moment to get there. But again, it was one of those things where I think this is a movie, this is like a perfect example of a movie that I didn't like love deeply, but I admire a lot. Mm -hmm because of how it plays with so many different emotions and ways to tell a story. And it's one that I've thought of maybe the most out of this bunch, like since I've seen it, because there is a lot in it, you know, the ending is another thing that people 
don't like. They're like, you know, what does this mean? Why is she doing this? Oh, I love the ending. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think it's fitting. It brings together why these characters came together in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, they're both trying to find some healing in their very wicked ways. But it's really the way that she goes about it that is so new and unexpected. And that keeps you intrigued, too. For sure. So would you recommend this movie? I definitely would. But it's for a certain audience. You know, it's for the Mm -hmm. non-squeamish. Yeah. People who like feeling sickened by, like, palpable sounds and, like, gross body horror you know there's a lot going on and if you want to feel some of what you're hearing and seeing on screen like there was a lot of me like looking through my fingers being like oh my god Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it is fun like there are also the soundtrack is incredible and the dance sequences are so good i'm still thinking about the macarena cpr scene (laughs) (laughs) i loved that when that came on, I just thought of the office scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we mentioned this a long time ago. We did. <laughs> I was like, wait, it's staying alive, not the Macarena. What are you right. doing? <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I think that I would love to recommend this to everyone, but it is a challenging watch. I know like people in my audience were audibly reacting to a number of scenes in this movie because they're quite gruesome and graphic. Mm. It's very, very European in a lot of ways, obviously, but I think the body horror element would be the toughest thing to get on board with if that's not something that you're normally viewing or you know, used to. I think if you're just looking for a fun time at the movies, this is not the movie on the list to watch. This is something where you, I think, have to be in the right headspace to really just like sit with what this movie is saying. And I think it's saying quite a few things. It has a lot going on in it. So if this doesn't sound like your type of movie, it might not be. But if you're any bit intrigued, I would say to go see it. It's also on VOD right now. So if you want to watch it at home, that's another option. This will probably be the most thought-provoking movie of the year. Not for me, but it is. It's up there. (laughs) (laughs) So then for Oscar potential for this movie, it was finally announced that France chose Titan as their submission for international feature over Petite Maman and Happening. Have you seen the other two or how do you feel about Titan's chances at winning the Oscar? I really loved Petite Maman, the new Celine Sciamma movie. No surprise there. I just really, really (laughs) connected with it. I wouldn't say I liked it more than this one. They're just incredibly different. I cannot believe France chose it. I think that's really cool and very exciting, especially because it's just so different and not Academy friendly, at least not in the Mm -hmm. way that we think of the Academy. I think its biggest hurdle will be getting into the shortlist. I think if it's in the shortlist, it has a good chance of getting nominated because it's super buzzy. It's won the Palme d'Or. People are talking about it. It's really hard to forget this movie compared to maybe some of the other ones that are on the list. It is a very strong group that we have so far, but I do think like biggest hurdle will be getting getting past that. Mm-hmm. It feels very much like France picking Les Miserables over Portrait of a Lady on Fire again. And I know Les Mis did get in. Yeah. So maybe 
they have a good chance here. Yeah. Lame is, though. It was much more of a standard political drama. And mm-hmm. this can't really be bound by any genre. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm just kind of in awe that they selected it. And it was dealing with more prescient issues. So I see why they chose that over mm-hmm. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yes, Titan has some really timely issues and some great discussion involved. But I have trouble seeing the Academy going for such a shocking movie. Like, I see part of Parasite in there and, like, them both being Palme d'Or winners. But it's so, so different, too. Yeah, that's funny. I was just going to mention Parasite. The thing with Parasite, though, is that no matter who I talk to, whether they were an avid moviegoer or someone who goes once every few months if they watched parasite they liked it or had something Mm -hmm. in it that they connected with i think parasite was extremely controlled and accessible this is not that and it doesn't have someone like bong joon ho behind it so yeah i don't think it has the legs to do what parasite did if you had to say yes or no it's getting in as a nominee what would you say i'm gonna say yes (laughs) (laughs) dang it Like for international feature? Yeah. I don't know. I It's so hard. I think I'm saying that because I am I hope it does. Because I think that would be fun mm-hmm. and it would be really cool. And Julia is such just such a strong, commanding voice. I love what she mm-hmm. has to say about humanity, about life, about filmmaking. And I think that it would just be amazing to see her at the Oscars. <sighs> Do you not agree? I really <laughs> am hoping for it too because I love an unexpected shocking movie but i'm feeling like a no i mean that's fair so some of our other options that have already been selected by their countries we have a hero the ashgar farhadi movie from iran we have compartment number six from finland i'm your man from germany drive my car from japan prayers for the stolen from mexico the good boss from spain which was super shocking because parallel mothers the Oh, no. Amazing. I Yeah, wow. I'm going to be really upset thinking about this. Um, Wasn't chosen. So I'm like, oh, God. Memoria was chosen by Colombia. Ooh. Lamb for Iceland. Oh, jeez. <laughs> the movie I can tell you that will not happen from Romania, which I think followed Titan's lead. And they were like, we're just going to do it. We're going to do the most ballsy, gutsy thing we can do, which is nominate bad luck, banging, or loony porn. Excuse me? That's their selection. I can tell you that's not happening. But... <laughs> Did you say worst person? So we have a number of like buzzy films that haven't been selected quite yet, but we can keep our eyes oh, on. Oh, I see. Okay. So like Norway, the worst person in the world, if they don't choose that... They're really screwing themselves out of an Oscar, potentially. Mm -hmm. That's my favorite for sure in this category this year and a big crowd pleaser. Flea from Denmark. I know that a lot of people are huge fans of that one too from Neon. The Hand of God from Italy. So Italy also technically could choose a bunch. Akiara, which was at New York Film Festival, I know, is also an option for them. So there are still countries who haven't chosen. So ones that we need to keep our eye on for sure. The Mm -hmm. deadline is November 1st, so it's coming up quickly. And by the time this episode airs, they probably will have chosen. But alas, (laughs) our short list, which will have 15 films, that will be released on December 21st. Exciting. I can't wait. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would you give it? 
So while it isn't my favorite in the category, because the worst person in the world hasn't yet been selected, of the ones selected at this point, I will give it best international feature. I think that it would be a very cool winner in the category, and I don't think it really has legs anywhere else, so I'm going to say that. What about you? I'm thinking of this more as my favorite aspect. That's fine. And not like a literal Oscar winner, but I would give it best director for Julia de Cornell. I think what she's shown in her two movies so far is beyond the scope of a lot of directors today, and I feel like she's a director that I'm going to be at every movie she puts out because it's so different, so out there, and I love what she's saying and that she's sparking these conversations in audiences. And I have to mention the one edit of Alexia walking to the car in the very beginning with this really low camera behind her. It zooms into her back on the lion on her jacket and this car roars and I was like, this is a five-star moment. So our next movie that we have is the latest Bond film, No Time to Die. Description here, James Bond is enjoying a tranquil life in Jamaica after leaving active service. However, his peace is short-lived as his old CIA friend, Felix Leiter, shows up and asks for help. The mission to rescue a kidnapped scientist turns out to be far more treacherous than expected, leading Bond on the trail of a mysterious villain who's armed with a dangerous new technology. This film was directed by Kerry Joji Fukunaga, and it stars Daniel Craig, Leia Seydoux, Rami Malek, Ana de Armas, Lashana Lynch, and more. So I know we started at the top of the episode by saying this was both of our like favorite on the list. What did mm-hmm. you think of No Time to Die? This had been the most fun I had had at the movies in a long time. Obviously, I saw Dune after this, so <laughs> <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> And I really wouldn't consider myself a Bond person or a franchise person in general, but I think I'm becoming one. I have to go back and see the originals. And of course, I'm saying this at the end of a saga, but I loved this as a conclusion to Daniel Craig and Bond. I was crying by the end. I think the story was epic. It was nonstop action. It was so engaging and... Like a French movie, we have this really personal story in the very beginning that leads us on this great journey around the world, and we have familiar characters, familiar faces. It's just every aspect worked for me, and early on, we have some really great sound work, so my mind was just going the whole time, and I thoroughly enjoyed this. I really loved this movie. I think part of it is... Being our age, like the bonds that we grew up with were the Daniel Craig bonds. So it was very emotional, I think, seeing this conclusion for our bond, basically. And I think there was a a lot of it also had to do with the fact that this was kind of the first big movie that was delayed in COVID. So seeing it finally, this movie that we had joked whether or not it was real or not, it finally happened and it was worth the wait. Yes, it has a long runtime, but it flew by to me for being almost three hours long. I think that it has a lot of great set pieces. I loved how they go. I mean, this is how most Bonds are, but they go to so many different beautiful locations. It's action-packed. The characters were just really fun and good emotional checkpoints for Bond, I think, in his journey. 
Ana de Armas stole the show for me, and she is not even in a lot of the movie, but I just absolutely loved her. It's just everything that a Bond movie should be. Yes, there are a lot of nonsensical details. The virus, to me, made absolutely no sense. Like, the characters' age differences made no sense. Like, how is some of this happening? I'm not sure. But that doesn't really matter to me when I watch a Bond film. It's just supposed to be fun, and this lived up to that for me. So I really have no complaints, which is rare for me, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Same for me. I know going in, I'm going to get some crazy action sequences, and that's what I came for. Mm Mm-hmm. And they delivered on every level. I also love the Anadharmas scene. And I really wanted more from her. Mm-hmm. But I also love that they just teased us and gave us a little snippet. Because she's so not only stunning, but her choreography is great. Her role just seems so perfect, even though it was short-lived. It was like, please give us more. Make her the next Bond something. I know. Oh my god, I know. She would be a great Bond. <laughs> <laughs> How did you feel about the title sequence and the Billie Eilish song? I thought it was fine. It's no Skyfall. Like, it's not Adele. Mm -hmm. And it's not my favorite Bond song, which is Nobody Does It Better by Carly Simon. But that's okay. It was better than quite a few of them. Mainly Mm -hmm. Writings on the Wall, which won an Oscar. So, yeah, (laughs) it didn't blow me away. But it just lived up to what I thought it would sound like. You know, very, like, Mm -hmm. brooding and haunting very Billie Eilish I think it worked yeah again we've been talking about it for so long (laughs) (laughs) I thought the sequence was great it brings back elements from old bonds too so I really like how they incorporated so many generations of bond into not only the sequence but the movie too I also really love Leia Seydoux she's just so beautiful Mm -hmm. and everything that she's in I am just instantly invested in her character and what she's wearing and what she's doing so yes (laughs) loved her i also loved all of the callbacks of course to vesper my favorite bond girl ever from casino royale i also have a very hard time getting over her i understand daniel craig's (laughs) issues here (laughs) (laughs) see getting a bond film every few years i don't remember the storyline I don't think I've rewatched these either. I know we talked about them on Mm -hmm. our popular Oscar of the 2000s. Yeah. But that didn't hinder my viewing experience in any way, I don't think. I remembered her face, but not the love story or Mm -hmm. a lot of what had happened. So if viewers hadn't seen the other ones as well, I don't think you're going to like this movie any less. I agree with that, especially because this movie kind of makes the assumption that it's coming out right after Spectre, like almost immediately, like audiences would have Spectre fresh in their brains. Mm -hmm. I personally didn't, and I enjoyed my time, so I don't think it's necessary. I think that if you have, sure, maybe that's going to make your experience better. But if you haven't, it's still like such a fun ride that you will still have fun with it. Do you want to talk about the elephant in the room here? (laughs) So Rami Malek is the Bond villain of my life. Um, You know, as a Bradley Cooper fan, he just exists in my life as a Bond villain. It's how I see him. So seeing him here, it was what I imagined it would be. It's just how I see him Mm -hmm. in everyday life. So it wasn't a really big stretch for me to believe him as this character. 
Bond villains to me, especially in the Daniel Craig era, are actually really silly. I never really understand their motivations. They always just have really just warped appearances. It's just, you know, I I don't try to understand the world that they're living in. I'm not really there Mm -hmm. for that. I'm there to see Bond and Daniel Craig and the relationships that exist between these characters as he's traveling around the world. Mm -hmm. That being said, I do think that Rami Malek is good in this movie. What did you think? I think this is how I always see Rami Malek, and (laughs) I actually also really liked him here. He's this diabolical, totally outlandish villain, but he plays it so well. I would say more so than, well, he wasn't a villain in The Small Things, The Little Things. The Little Things. He was a cop, right? Yeah. Oh, God. Um, (laughs) The Small Things. (laughs) That movie. Wow, I forgot about that. And you mentioning how... Villains are usually there just as this counterpiece to what Bond is doing. I think what they do here with Rami and his character really meshes well with what Bond is struggling with internally and with this woman of his past, but also of his present and future and a lot of internal struggle. So I also thought it was just a smartly made and written movie. I agree. So I think it's safe to say we would recommend this, but would you recommend this movie? Absolutely. And this is like, no holds barred. Everyone go see this movie. It did really well box office wise the first weekend. And I think there's a reason for that. So I think it's really for anyone. Would you say the same thing? Like even if you don't love action movies or thrillers, even other Bond movies, I still think this is a really fun movie to go see. Also, it has Daniel Craig in it and a lot of really beautiful people. So it's just a fun watch. (laughs) It starts off with a very unclothed Daniel Craig, and seeing this in IMAX was eye-popping, to say the least. Those small little shorts. (laughs) You could even call them shorts, sure. (laughs) (laughs) But you mentioned the runtime, too, and that was my biggest problem going into this. I was like, this is the longest Bond movie ever made by Mm -hmm. a long shot, 163 minutes. But when it came out of it, I was like both, wow, I could have watched another 20, 30 minutes of this, but also this was the perfect runtime because it leaves you wanting more, but it also ends at the right moment. I completely agree. So a little bit with Oscar potential here. James Bond films as a whole have received 16 Oscar nominations over the years, and then it's won a couple too. So Goldfinger won Best Sound Effects, Thunderball won Best Special Visual Effects, and then we have quite a big gap. Until in 2013, when Adele won Best Original Song for Skyfall, and Skyfall also won Best Sound Editing. Its most recent win was in 2016, when, of course, we've talked about this, Sam Smith won Best Original Song for Spectre. Do you think this movie has Oscar potential? I think it does. I'm really rooting for a Best Sound nomination. Mm -hmm. I think it's even on par with Dune. So this would be a great Oscar fight to see happen. Mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of great elements. The costumes are amazing. Anna and Leah, their dresses, I just... Mm -hmm. Leah's white dress. Yes. Mm -hmm. So great. (laughs) I mean, even cinematography, I know that would be so outlandish. But the lighting is great. The framing and even special effects. Do you think there's a chance for hairstyling and makeup? With Rami's face? (laughs) Maybe. My 
thing I think so cinematography is incredibly crowded this year already we have so many black and white movies but this movie was shot by Linus Sandgren who also shot La La Land and won for La La Land so we do have a winner Mm. who could be really appreciated by the branch so if this just randomly shows up because people like popular movies this year again you know the revitalization of cinema and the box office all of that like maybe it could happen I wouldn't predict it now, but he did win before, so wouldn't be that shocking, I guess, if he showed up. That would be exciting. Yeah. I think what would be the most fun thing, which won't happen, but I would love, is if this got a Best Picture nomination, since we have 10 nominees this year. I think that would be really fun. It does have, you know, a big studio behind it. It's really well known. It's the farewell to Daniel Craig. So Mm -hmm. it won't happen, but if it did, I would be really excited. Its best chances are in sound and in best original song for Billie Eilish. She is an awards magnet. She has so many Grammys. She and her brother Phineas. So I will not be shocked if she wins. I know that Beyonce has a song in King Richard and that is the leader for a lot of people right now. But don't be shocked if Billie Eilish just comes in and snags it. I mean, after last year, there was really no front runner, and then her won the Oscar. Mm-hmm. You know, if we have a lot of big performers or big names again, yeah, Beyonce, Billie Eilish, like another fight. Yeah, I would give the edge to Beyonce because King Richard has a better chance of getting a Best Picture nomination, I think, than No Time to Die. But mm-hmm. still, I would love to see competitive races at the Oscars, of course. Didn't she have a song for The Lion King too? She did, yeah. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? This would be another multi-winner for me, but I'm going to go with best sound. My favorite moment was when the explosion happened, and you could hear the ringing in mm-hmm. Bond's ears and how his sound was like slowly coming back. I thought that was really cool. What would you give it? I liked that too, and best sound would also be my pick. Thinking about this now in comparison to Dune... This is really impressive work, but it's not as overwhelming as Dune can be, I think, sometimes. So I would give the edge, actually, to No Time to Die, now that I think about it. Just for my personal voting, not how the Academy will vote, but just Mm -hmm. for me. Ooh, interesting. And I did give Dune best sound last week, so just a lot of conflict. (laughs) (laughs) So next up, we'll be talking about mass description. The parents of a victim of a school shooting meet face-to-face with the parents of the perpetrator. It's directed by Fran Kranz and stars Anne Dowd, Martha Plimpton, Jason Isaacs, and Reed Burney. What were your thoughts on Mass? I really, really liked this movie. It's hard to say like I liked this movie because I didn't enjoy my experience watching it. It is a very painful, intense watch. It doesn't pull any of its punches. It's super vivid and specific, especially in the dialogue. I loved the writing in this movie, especially the conversations between these two couples. And I found myself just hanging on every word. And it just, it features outstanding performances. I don't know if I'm going to see a better ensemble all year, really. Mm -hmm. It feels to me, and this is one of the criticisms I have of it, it felt like I was watching just some really brilliant play downtown. But I love the performances deeply and the subject matter Mm -hmm. is really important. And I was really impressed actually that it didn't really take a side. It hears everyone out 
in the story. That's what I really liked about it because that is what's making you think the whole time. It's like you get to hear the dialogue from both parents who are in a way removed from their children. And that is such an interesting perspective to take. Mm -hmm. And the way they flow between topics and the way that like Martha Plimpton's character is like, no, I don't want to hear about this. You know, like we read about this in the files, Mm -hmm. like tell me something new. It was like, oh, yes. Mm -hmm. And I loved her so much. (laughs) Yeah. I think most people I've talked to about this movie or reviews I've read, they all have different favorites, which I think is interesting. But for me, Hmm. Martha Plimpton was my MVP. I just loved her so much. She is just fully delivering the entire film. And you really believe her character in this emotional journey that she's going through, you know, not wanting to be there in the first place. I think especially compared to her husband in the movie, Jason Isaacs, who I think is able to put on the show a little bit more. He's able to pretend that he can be there and to, you know, have these conversations and she's just over it. She's like, I'm not doing that. But she is ultimately the one who takes us through that journey to forgiveness. And it's really, really astonishing work for an actor to just give Mm -hmm. us that, I think. I think I was able to find faults in the movie because the acting sets such a high standard for everything else that's happening. And it's just them talking. Like, that's all it is. And it's cutting between their faces. Mm -hmm. And that's a little bit of what I had trouble with and how they try to get away from that too. Mm -hmm. But that's what you come for. And discussion-wise, I mentioned how they flow between things like the implications of the healthcare system and how screwed up it is and gun reform and how their perspectives on these things differ and how they treated them publicly after this shooting. Mm -hmm. And it's a very political movie, but it's also so grounded and so personal. Mm -hmm. One thing that I love about this movie is that we don't get flashbacks. We don't get like what happened the day of the school shooting. We don't get to know these boys beforehand. We only know this moment. And I realized I never really wanted to like, go back to that time. I didn't really want to know. And I thought it was pretty brilliant how they just kind of tease out little things that happened that are sort of answers to what you were wondering, but also it kind of protects Mm -hmm. you in a sense, just like the parents are with each other, to not revealing all of it until and Dowd scene at the end, which I I think is just like a jaw dropper, Mm -hmm. really. Like, that would be her Oscar clip it moment Mm -hmm. of, those final few minutes. Oh my God, yeah. But I agree, this film succeeds because of its nuance. And I feel like this idea for a movie walks a fine line between going too far and not doing enough Mm -hmm. or seeming not mature enough. And it does everything really, really well. I have to mention what I didn't like just because. (laughs) And One was the church worker, I don't know what to call her, Oh my goodness. who is so uncomfortable to watch. And I get that maybe she's some relief from what's happening, but that did not work for me. And then the other is the way they cut the middle in half, basically, by this shot to this field. And I probably spent 20 to 30 minutes of this movie trying to make a metaphor out of the tape that was hanging from the barbed wire and like... <sighs> 
oh, their life is like flowing with the wind. And I was like, what is happening? And then you finally get there in the end, but it's like, stop doing this. Yeah. I think it would have been fine if we maybe had those operating as bookends. Like you had a shot at the beginning there and then you had a shot at the end. But some of the choices in the middle did perplex me. Like random zooms and certain editing choices just felt odd. Like I was just so focused that when we would get to points like that, I didn't really need to take a breath. And maybe some Mm -hmm. people in the audience needed that little like break or like a moment Mm -hmm. to just breathe. I didn't, though, because I was just so in it. I was like, I want to know everything that's happening. I just want to see these people talking. I don't want anything else Mm -hmm. right now. So I hear you. The church lady was, wow. I did keep thinking to myself during (laughs) it, though. I was like, Aaron Sorkin should have cast this woman to play Lucille Ball instead of Nicole Kidman. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) She just had this sort of uncomfortable comedy to her. And I know that's like... The box. The box for the plant. I Enough of the box. My God. No. I, I couldn't. I could not do it. Jeez. I just like couldn't do it any longer. And I, I think that's like part of her purpose. But the multiple endings, I think, were also a lot. Like it, it didn't quite know where to end, I feel like, at times. And mm-hmm. part of that, though, I actually think makes sense. Because in moments like these, you're not really sure when to leave, how to say goodbye, how to wrap it up so i kind of did like that but it was super uncomfortable especially because of the church workers (laughs) well you're ready like your body is ready to let go Mm -hmm. and then there's Anne, and it's like oh here we go i wanted some of the middle part to like go bigger yeah like martha has a really good scene Mm -hmm. but i almost wanted it to keep going Because that is what I was feeding off of during Uh the conversation, which again is a hard thing to do. Like you should only go so far with this material. Yeah. And it does it well. I did want more like selfishly, but it also was enough for me. Like I'm not really sure Mm -hmm. how I would have reacted to more. This is a tough watch, but I was just like, I was really into it. So would you recommend this? Absolutely. I thought this was a really strong film. An excellent directorial debut. And just features amazing performances. Like I said, I don't know if we're going to see a better group of performances this year. And I know it's a tough subject matter, like gun violence, school shootings. And it can be like really emotionally difficult at times in this movie. But it's not gratuitous. It's not violent. It is just people sitting in a room talking. And I always love movies like that. So I would recommend it. (laughs) I would recommend this too. That description of it may be hard for people, but I feel the same way. I think it's smart in what it's trying to accomplish and tell viewers. And it's not super common for us to get four or in a way, all amazing performances. What do you think about this movie's Oscar potential? I know we've talked a lot about it going to Bleecker Street and Bleecker Street's track record. What do you think here? They still haven't done anything with this, so it's not looking good. Do I think they should? I would love to see one or two of them get in, but it's going to be hard. They're all supporting, right? They're all supporting, yeah. It's kind of shocking to me that Andout is still in the lead on Gold Derby for Supporting Actress, because I would put Martha above her. 
But again, it's also shocking that none of these four are Oscar nominees. Mm -hmm. So to be able to call them that, like, I really want that for them. But I think if anything, this may get one nomination, if that. Yeah, I'm really worried about this. I don't get the Andowed thing in number one. I know that she is so nice, like from what I've heard from people who've met her, that she's just really personable and she gives an amazing performance in this movie and she, if anyone, has the final say in the movie. Mm -hmm. And she's super well known, you know, she's won an Emmy for Handmaid's Tale, Mm -hmm. but I just, with this movie, you know, it it just confuses me. You know, it was at Sundance and then didn't do any of the fall festivals. It's really hard to find in theaters. I know in New York, we have so many movie theaters and it was playing at two, two movie theaters. Like you have to screen this thing. It has to build word of mouth because it's so Mm -hmm. difficult. It's so emotional. And I just don't see it happening. I think maybe critics choice, but this is a really strong year for movies so far too. I think with the things that have been coming out at festivals and what I will say that is interesting to me is that at the Gotham Awards, Reed Burney was the only one from this ensemble nominated. He's great in this movie, but I was shocked because that's a very different role. He has a really difficult job of being the more conservative one of the Mm -hmm. group, being the one most resistant to change. He is the character, I think, in the film that doesn't change. So that's a really hard role to play. But that's also the most unlikable character, I think, in the movie. So the fact that he got nominated there is interesting to me. And I feel like he has the fewest lines out of anybody regardless of how big the performance is that is really shocking to me right and i love jason too like the scene when jason isaacs like goes up to get the water bottle and he starts to kind of unravel love Mm -hmm. really really great acting i think maybe independent spirit might be a place but i just like we have so many like the lost daughter and passing and pig and other movies that these studios are really gonna push People like Mm -hmm. Netflix and A24 and Neon. And it's like, Bleecker Street, you need to play. Please. Please play the game. I want to see you play. Like, play the game. Get in there. Get dirty. This movie deserves that. And it's just not getting it. So it makes me sad. So then if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would you give it? I would give Martha Plimpton Best Supporting Actress. She's my favorite part of the ensemble. Love her. And so would I. I think she's incredible. I related to all of her reactions in this movie. Mm -hmm. She kind of reminded me of like what Barbara Stanwyck does. Like if we're thinking way back, she reminded Mm. me a lot of how she reacts with her face and just has a lot, a lot of emotion just in one look. Okay, time to move on to The Last Duel. Description here. In 1386, Marguerite de Carouge claims to have been raped by her husband's best friend and squire Jacques Legree. Her husband, Jean de Carouge, challenges him to trial by combat, the last legally sanctioned duel in France's history. The events leading up to the duel are divided into three chapters, reflecting the perspectives of de Carouge, Legree, and Marguerite, respectively. This movie was directed by Ridley Scott. It stars Jodie Comer, Adam Driver, Matt Damon, and Ben Affleck. It was also written by Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and Nicole Holofcener. What did you think of The Last Duel? This is one I had trouble with. Visually, it creates a fully realized 14th century. And in reading some of the trivia about this movie, they even placed with visual effects scaffolding around Notre Dame because that's what was happening at Mm -hmm. that time. Yeah. So I think that's incredible. And 
all of the set pieces, the costumes, but the story being made by Ridley Scott just seemed too much for me. Like, I thought Jodie Comer was great. Mm-hmm. When is she not? Right. But a man directing this movie. So when I mentioned with Titan, it's like, why are you showing a rape twice? Are you like teaching the audience, maybe mostly male something? Or are you trying to do this for shock value? Some of it was just very uncomfortable. And by the end, you know the truth. And I just felt a little disconnected from it. Did you feel differently? Did you like this? I did, actually. I agree with you. Like, having a rape shown twice was a lot. I don't know how necessary that was. I think this is a tricky movie to untangle. But if your point of the movie is to say, like, these male perspectives are wrong. Men are trash. These opinions Mm -hmm. don't matter. Like, they're false. Why are you giving voice to them, right? Like, they take up a majority of this movie. Like, the Matt Damon section of the movie I thought was boring. Like, straight, just straight up not interesting. (laughs) (laughs) I really wasn't interested in this film until Adam Driver showed up. No surprise. But the Adam Driver (laughs) section of the movie, that middle section, that's when it started to pick up for me. And just that's Mm. when it started to hold me a little bit differently because... One, it had Adam Driver and Ben Affleck doing whatever he was doing in this movie, which is just (laughs) absolutely wild. But that's when I started to see, I think, what was different here in that, like, there was a really nuanced way here to talk about the Me Too themes and Mm -hmm. to talk about consent. And I thought what was unique about the Adam Driver part, too, was that he didn't view what was happening as a rape, clearly. But to the audience, especially today, it is very clear that what he's doing is rape. Mm -hmm. I also think that the Rashomon-type structure that's similar to the show The Affair also, which I really liked, I thought that that worked well here because I think that due to the time period, that is something that is kind of crucial to understanding like how people would have seen this at the time, like those differences of opinion. By the end, I was just, like, so annoyed by this movie. I had just had it up to here with it and was just ready for it to be over. But I will say that Ridley Scott stages fighting, especially, like, medieval fighting, like, no other. That was, like, really intense. The way that he was blocking the actors. I was so annoyed by Matt Damon, though. I will steal a line from Hunter Harris from her newsletter, which is that we should have more movies about bullying Matt Damon. (laughs) I think that's great. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i think jodie comer was just she was really really good here and i'm kind of sad that this bombed at the box office only because i do want more attention to go to her and i think that really speaks to nicole's writing Mm -hmm. i really want to know if she wrote all of jodie comer stuff or all of the third part like Mm -hmm. i don't know how much and hopefully that comes out through award season This is such a different movie for Matt and Ben to be co-writers on again. Uh Uh-huh. First time since Goodwill Hunting. Yes. And that's partly why I think it would be kind of fun for it to be an adapted screenplay nominee, because they could go back to the Oscars together with Nicole Hall Center. I just, I mean, if you want Uh your ratings to go up, like, have Ben and J-Lo there. You can't nominate her for Hustlers, but have Ben come back for screenplay, which he'll lose, but still. (laughs) (laughs) I learned through this video that I watched through Vanity Fair that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, they wrote their screenplay pretty much based on the book The Last Duel by Eric Yeager. 
But Matt Damon, the way he said it, he said, like, Ben and I basically wrote an adapted screenplay and Nicole wrote an original screenplay because she fully created the Marguerite point of view that I guess was not in the book. So they kind of worked with the existing material and she wrote wholly original material. So I feel like that is, (laughs) that says a lot, but also makes more sense, I think, to why I thought Marguerite was more nuanced. One thing also about this movie that I thought was bad but also fun was that no character in this movie cares that their accent sounds different from everyone else in the movie. No one is from like the same place or time period. None of them. (laughs) They are all in their own movie. (laughs) That's funny because I was trying to look up reviews or critiques of this movie and one of the first articles that came up was one by cbr.com called the last duel affleck damon explain their characters accents (laughs) (laughs) and i didn't care enough to read it but maybe it explains something of what is going on affleck is just in his own movie i loved it loved it (laughs) i wanted more i wanted him to have his own movie it's really the goatee that gets me he's (laughs) obviously in a crisis (laughs) This movie was pre-Bennifer Part 2 when it was filmed, so he was in crisis. Overall, it was just a big whose dick is bigger contest between Adam, the Matt Damon character, and Adam Driver. We get to see one of them, so... Never mind. <laughs> it's, it's a, that's, a, that's fake. That's not him. Not that I know, sadly, but it's not. <laughs> That oh was God. CG'd in. Is Why does it saying? go here? No, it's just like a body double or like a fake prop. <laughs> He's not method enough to be like that. I mean, I could see him being that. No, don't put this in my mind like that. I don't want to rewatch this movie again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I really just wanted them to play This is a Man's World over the closing <laughs> credits. That is what this is. By the end, I didn't care about who won the duel because we know the truth. My one other thing was that I wanted them to kill that eyebrowless mother. She's really awful. I think, though, like, that's another case, though, where, like, this movie was interesting enough to me because that woman exists still today. The mother who says those cruel things and who's like, well, I did it this way, so it shouldn't matter to you. I will say, though, like, she's vile in a different way than Matt Damon is, so it didn't really make sense that she would be his mother. I don't know. Mm -hmm. He looks like he walks out of a West Virginia medieval times, and she definitely fits into the time period. (laughs) I understand her as a character, and she is this mother who's gone through so much trauma in her life, Mm -hmm. and I think it adds a really interesting perspective when her and Marguerite are talking at the end, Mm -hmm. but... Obviously, it's a little problematic in a way, but I did like how that added a different element to the story. Mm-hmm. Did you have another thing? I feel like we were talking about something with Ben. No, it was the, oh, the way he says, now take off your pants. <laughs> <laughs> something you wish you could also say to Adam Driver. <laughs> that is triggering. <laughs> that is not nice. <laughs> I already had complicated enough feelings about him in this movie. This is just making it worse. Mm-hmm. Just reminding me. Um, yeah. Well, anyway, (laughs) would you recommend this movie? (laughs) I would mostly say no. I think this would do well for a similar Bond crowd. Like the world it's creating is 
incredible to see. But I feel like Ridley Scott trying to tell this Me Too story just felt weird to me. Apart from like the actors being in different movies at the same time. It didn't work for me. Maybe if it had been 30 minutes shorter, maybe I would have liked it more. I don't know. It felt like it just went on too long with the story having been explained pretty early on. Would you recommend it? I actually would recommend it. It's kind of interesting because it feels like a movie from another time in a lot of ways. Like maybe Mm -hmm. late 90s, early 2000s. And I feel like we don't get those kinds of like adult dramas anymore so much. Like it's mostly like franchise. So I would recommend it for that reason too. I'm kind of just curious that it even got made this year in the first place. Just very strange to me. There's enough in it that I liked. Maybe it's because Adam Driver's in it. Maybe it's because Jodie Comer's in it. I don't know. (laughs) But I also just recommend, like, if you're iffy on the Me Too of it all, a lot of women have reviewed this movie. So definitely, like, find some reviews that are written by women and see what they have to say because people process trauma differently. People experience things differently on screen, obviously. So um, see what other Mm -hmm. women have to say and decide i think if that's something they are up for i really agree with what you said about this being made now it does feel like this is a movie that should have been made 15 years ago yeah nothing was new enough for me to find the light (laughs) not even never mind (laughs) (laughs) so do you see any oscar potential for this movie I would have said yes if the box office wasn't so weak, but this just isn't Mm -hmm. really popular. I think that not only has it been eclipsed by other October releases like Dune now, like No Time to Die, but also we have another Ridley Scott movie coming. We have House of Gucci. So I kind of feel like that's going to be the narrative. It's going to just push this to the back burner. Maybe Mm -hmm. people love House of Gucci so much and it starts a Ridley Scott conversation that people do check this out. Because it is that kind of like big old studio movie that would have gotten Oscars back in 2004. Mm -hmm. What do you think? So way back when we talked about Oscar potential for the year, like Mm -hmm. before any of these movies had been seen, we asked each other, so what movie is really big right now, but is going to totally flop and get no nominations or wins? Uh And I think this is that movie. Mm. Everything you're saying you know, all of the technical elements, there are some great ones. Maybe it's like best chances in costume. But again, we're already talking about that for House of Gucci. So it's almost like he's battling himself, which is unfortunate. Yeah. But it's also we have some really strong actress performances this year. And I don't think even Jodie Comer is going to get in. And that would be the one for me. And I just I don't think this is a case of Steven Soderbergh two best director nominations in a year for Aaron Brockovich and traffic situation. Like that's a very crowded field as well. And these Mm -hmm. just aren't, I mean, we haven't seen house of Gucci yet, but I can't, this just isn't going to make a splash like that one. It hasn't yet. I don't know if it's going to ever. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I think it would be for art direction. That was my favorite part of the movie being in the 14th century dredging through the mud what would you give it i have to think of what i was most entertained by in this movie i would give best supporting actor to ben affleck oh my god 
just kicking me off the air now. <laughs> what did you give Annette? Did you give it to Adam? Yeah. Both of your men have been awarded now. I have so many men that, you know, I have a couple more <laughs> coming this year that I'm definitely going to give Oscars to on our episodes. <laughs> I also learned that Ben Affleck was supposed to play the Jacques Legree character, the Adam Driver character, but they thought like the existing audience like knowledge and opinion of his relationship and friendship with Matt Damon would kind of affect how they viewed the duel ultimately. So they cast Adam Driver instead. Mm. I feel like that worked out better. I can't really imagine if it was like Matt versus Ben. It would be super weird. Even weirder than the movie is already. (laughs) Next up is the Wild Halloween Kills. Description, sequel to Halloween from 2018, which begins precisely where the previous film ended and sees Strode and her family continuing to fend off Myers, this time with the help of the Haddonfield community. It's directed by David Gordon Green. It stars Jamie Lee Curtis, Judy Greer, Kyle Richards, Andy Matichak, and more. This was quite a roller coaster. How was your experience watching this? It was pretty bad. Um, <laughs> this might be the worst movie I've seen in 2021. Uh, maybe with the exception being The Kissing Booth 3. Oh my god. It just, to me, felt super unnecessary. And I'm a big fan of horror. I've talked extensively on our podcast about how much I love horror movies I think the original Halloween from 1978 is a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. I even liked the 2018 version. I really thought that was a clever sequel and like reboot to the original. But this one just like it felt too overdone and unnecessary to me to the point where I was like, why? Why is any of this happening at all? (laughs) And I don't know why I guess David Gordon Green feels loyal to the trilogy format. I think this middle installment, I just kept thinking to myself, why do we not just have Halloween 2018 and then one more film? I feel like that would have been fine. Mm-hmm. Once I got over how horrifically campy and unnecessary and bad it was, I played into it and then I started really liking it. I don't think this is campy, though. I would just consider this like straight up bad. You don't write into a script 40 years ago or Evil Dies Tonight like 13 plus times without it being hyperbole. Like if it would have been five or six, I would have been like, okay, this is bad writing. You should have edited. But there's so much of this happening. I was like, okay, this is no mistake. And then I just started to see it as this middleman movie where they're like on this journey. It's all about Michael just being evil and being immortal and I just had fun with it like Jamie Lee Curtis is out for most of the movie and there's a there's another problem that I had so we can get to that in a minute but that that to me was really tough Jamie not being in it yeah because it's like for me that would be like if you had I'm trying to think of an example let's say you make a remake to Silence of the Lambs Clary Starling is trapped in the prison the whole movie and we and she can't do anything she's just sitting in one location while all of these other people around her it's their story like I just I didn't want that from this like if if Laurie Strode if Jamie Lee Curtis is there like I want her to be in on the action right she did an incredible job in Halloween yeah both of them really but 
I mean the more recent one. Like that was just total horror. Mm -hmm. Lots of gore, lots of action from her, the cast, like the women were amazing. Yeah. I loved what they were rebooting and doing again. So it really all comes down to Halloween Ends, which is going to be released next year (laughs) and how that plays. So I'm thinking if the trilogy is like this rainbow or arc of genre shifting, Mm -hmm. then maybe it could be some like genius filmmaking element from Green. This is genius? This movie? No. No. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. Hold I'm on. saying if his if his arc of what he's creating and he ends on a different note, then he could be just making a trilogy of every kind of genre you could imagine, which I feel like would be fun as a filmmaker. Like to have that opportunity. It's not done. I'm not saying that's good filmmaking, but I think it's fun and interesting. I understand all the problematic moments in this movie and why people hate it Mm -hmm. walking out of the theater. So I read some IMDb trivia, which helped a little bit. Mm -hmm. A lot of this movie was just an ode to Halloween 2. Every moment was like something that had happened in the first movie or like they find the dead dog in the house. Apparently from Halloween 2, they talk about it and they never show it. So they're kind of expanding on this world. And the way the Halloween series worked, Jamie Lee Curtis wasn't in all of them. She was only in six, I think. And there are six separate Halloween timelines happening between all of the 12 parts of the series. So I found that interesting in that they were bringing back a lot of the earlier films and moments because there are quite a bit of flashbacks in this movie. Thank you for teeing me up for the other thing that I really hated here. Um, The flashbacks to 1978. (laughs) Absolutely, like, hated that. The thing about Halloween 2 that's interesting is that when David Gordon Green made Halloween 2018, the film itself kind of pretended that the other Halloweens besides the original didn't exist. That was his conceit, was that we have Halloween 1978 and now we have Halloween 2018. The middle films aren't there. So if he's calling back to Halloween 2, that is kind of interesting. If he's kind of doing, he's mirroring that original structure, I guess, um, Mm -hmm. going back to those. I didn't hate all of it. I thought that some of it was funny in a bad way. I can get to some of my favorite parts in a minute. But the callbacks to 78, I really didn't like because to me, they tainted something that was really powerful about the original. And that's the ending. The ending of the 1978 Halloween is one of my favorite horror movie endings ever and something that I remember shocking me as a kid when I first saw it. When you look out the window and you expect Michael to be laying on the ground dead and he's gone with no explanation. And this here kind of ruined that for me. It gave an explanation. It added this other story just to give a random emotional arc to a character who's also in a hospital bed. It just felt kind of senseless to me to, if you supposedly love an original thing, this original film, why are you doing that? I'm also considering them two very different things because this is a very different movie from that original Halloween. Like this is mostly a comedy. (laughs) But David Gordon Green said it's not a comedy. Well, that's how I'm viewing it. So I can stay on good terms. I think if you view it that way, I think that's fine. Another fun thing about these three movies, they each will have been released 40 years after the original one, two, and three. So that 
also made me feel a little better about how many times they say 40 years ago because it's oh, literally man. 40 years ago from Halloween 2. The dialogue here is really, really tough. There's a it's lot of bad crunchy. stuff. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I call it camp because it's just so much that it like couldn't have been written seriously. I also just like the whole thing with Tommy and the baseball bat. I was so over. Uh-huh. My last fun trivia thing, and then we can talk about the really good and really bad moments. Halloween Kills followed Halloween pretty much where it left off. But Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends, there's going to be a four-year time gap. Oh, I so didn't know So I think that's that. interesting. And as like a bookend to the Michael myers Laurie Strode saga, I'm expecting big things, which is asking for a <laughs> letdown already. <laughs> I mean, if you like this one, though, like, who knows? I'm up for whatever, honestly. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> I the bar is low now, so I'm mm-hmm. I'm hoping we get back back up to the 2018 level. Yeah. My favorite part of this whole movie, though, as a lifelong, practically Real Housewives of Beverly Hills watcher, was Kyle Richards. <laughs> That's what I wanted from this. That to me was the level of comedy and emotion and just silliness that I wanted mm-hmm. from her role. This is kind of a spoiler. So if you don't want to hear this, skip ahead like 30 seconds to a minute. <laughs> but why is she the only one that survives? I think because she's Kyle Richards. <laughs> I thought she was going to die for sure because she was Kyle Richards. But yeah. I love that she lived. I was so happy when she like emerges from the dirt. I was like, oh my God, love. I also didn't know she was in the original. Yeah, Lindsay, the little girl being babysat. So you don't watch Beverly Hills. but So in the lead up to this movie, she talked about Halloween kills nonstop. (laughs) She was like, I have to work on my movie. I have to go do this for the movie. I'm acting again. Got to do this for the movie. We were like, Halloween Kills, we have to see this because, you know, once the movie airs, like once it comes out, Kyle will have nothing to talk about anymore. <laughs> but I think the most important thing is that she broke her nose during the filming of Halloween Kills and got a nose job. <laughs> Just oh incredible God. stuff. Like that's Maybe that's really what I wanted season. from this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and what was your worst moment? Well, so, like, besides, like, the serious things for me, like, the flashbacks, like, most gruesome kill. That or just, like, where you wanted to walk out or you could do both. I actually really liked the Big John, Little John (laughs) storyline. I really liked that. (laughs) Like, them living in the Myers house. Very gruesome, but I liked it. Um, The part where I wanted to walk out was when the other person who had escaped. Mm Mm-hmm. When the mob thought that he was Michael Myers and was, like, chasing him through the hospital. Yeah. And then he, like, that really gruesome death. I was like, I Mm -hmm. did not need any of this. Like, what what is happening here? This, and that is when the walkout in my theater happened. (laughs) It wasn't me. I stayed. But (laughs) there was a walkout at that point. That whole storyline, I understand. But it was so weird that... Judy Greer's character is connecting to this psychopath who got out yeah. and I'm like he's not a good guy he's not innocent either just, it was just weird yeah I. but I also love the big John little John 
My favorite moment is when Little John, who's played by Michael McDonald from Mad TV, he has this knife in his hand and he looks in the mirror to his right and he like he jumps when he sees himself. Yeah. <laughs> I died laughing. That was, was really so good. good. Well, they go through so many iterations of the Myers house. I thought that was interesting story-wise. And then some other moments. The Judy Greer of it all, obviously. Mm-hmm. Amazing. A star. <laughs> and then some of the deaths, the one in the house, Ooh. wildly gruesome. No. And that no. is what I wanted more of. But More from this? Just great. This wasn't enough? Yeah, why not? It's Halloween. Yes, but this was like too much. And maybe slasher, like post 80s slashers are not for me mm-hmm. compared to other horror movies. But like I, we had so many. I was good. Like the the long light bulb. That I sound hated effect that. was too much Ooh. for me. I will no, say that. I really hated that. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> your clutch right I'm like now. grabbing my neck thinking of it. <laughs> And like when with her husband, that woman's husband, when Michael just decides to jab every single knife like in their house into that man's back, just taking one. I was like, really? Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I did love the pitchfork. Amazing. So would you recommend this? I would not. um, I would only (laughs) recommend this to someone who is doing like a who's a completist. Like if you want to see every Halloween movie, watch this. Mm-hmm. If you're a fan of Kyle Richards, but not a fan of horror, maybe skip it and just like watch some clips. Yeah, as a whole, I don't recommend this. There are so many horror movies to watch. Mm-hmm. I would watch something else. I would, which maybe hurts my recommendation cred because <laughs> just makes it all over the place. I guess if you know it's a comedy and it's not like the original or like his Halloween just have fun with it. Okay. I would watch this again on Peacock. Okay. <laughs> um, this probably goes without saying, but do you think this has any Oscar potential? No. I think it might have Razzie potential, but not <laughs> yeah, Oscar. Actually. If you could or had to give this movie one Oscar, what would you give it? I would give Kyle Richards Best Supporting <laughs> Actress. <laughs> she was my favorite part of the movie and committed to her role. Oh, my God. When she gets out of the car and is, like, yelling at those kids to get off the playground. My God, here for it. (laughs) What about you? Well, if we're not giving it original screenplay or or adapted screenplay, I don't know what this would count as. (laughs) I would probably give it makeup and hairstyling, which is probably something... That it would only have a chance for besides Mm -hmm. like score if that were a thing. Oh, yeah. More so for like prosthetics and all of the gory stuff that happens. Great. (laughs) (laughs) Putting that one behind us. Our last movie today is The French Dispatch. Very different from Halloween Kills. Description here, the staff of a European publication decides to publish a memorial edition highlighting the three best stories from the last decade. An artist sentenced to life imprisonment, student riots, and a kidnapping resolved by a chef. This was directed by Wes Anderson, and it stars a massive ensemble cast. I think we can get to some of those names as we go through the three main stories. But just in general, what did you think of The French Dispatch? I thought it was beautiful. 
I think maybe his most visually stunning piece, story-wise, pretty forgettable. You sound like me talking about Dune. (laughs) (laughs) I really liked at the end how he listed a bunch of journalists and like the movie is just a huge ode to the New Yorker publication, which a lot of this is based off of, or at least the titular French dispatch of the movie. But it's really like Wes just doing his thing, all of these actors just doing what they do, and they're moving on to their next feature. How did you feel about it? I really liked it, but I will say I think it gets better on like repeat viewings. I've seen it twice now, and on the second time I pulled out more than on the first time. I think what's challenging about this movie is that its anthology structure keeps you kind of at a distance. It doesn't really let you in and let you Mm -hmm. kind of get to know these characters and feel attached to it. And there's so much going on in this movie visually that if you zone out for 10 seconds, you will be lost when you try to jump back in. Mm -hmm. And I think it's easier with some stories compared to others. We can talk about some of those, but... Overall, I did like it. I think some people are saying that it's like style over substance. I don't think so. And that's only because I could tell watching this that these things are really important to Wes Anderson. And that's really cool. Like seeing a filmmaker like him who has a very singular vision and style show you what he cares about in this way unapologetically in his most visually stunning movie yet. I'm not going to take that for granted or act like it's not good. I also just align more with the things that he likes, I would say, that are on the nerdy side than like sci-fi, for example. Like I would love to just like ride my bike around France and talk about art and food. I think that is what's grabbing is he's doing so much with the set design. He's switching between live action and animation. I feel like it might even be split screen at times, like black and Mm -hmm. white color. And maybe you explaining it that way of splitting it up, kind of taking you out emotionally. Maybe that's why I felt less connected to it versus Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is such a warm movie. And you have these characters that you love. And maybe that's another problem is that you have so many A-listers in the same room Mm -hmm. or in the same movie and you can't connect to all of them. Yeah, they're all good and they all feel underutilized at the same time because Mm -hmm. there are so many of them and because of the anthology structure. So it is kind of a hard place to be. And I like that you mentioned Fantastic Mr. Fox because that's my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Mm -hmm. I think that's yours too. But a lot of Wes's older films, and I'm including Fantastic Mr. Fox in this, are warmer. They're more emotional. They're like family dramas sometimes. Like if you think about the Royal Tenenbaums too... And now he's moving, I think, away from that and moving much more into like, I'm going to just give you something that is so visually stunning, almost like you're in an immersive art exhibition, Mm -hmm. as opposed to in your typical like narrative drama or dramedy. Mm -hmm. And it's just a different, it's interesting to see where he's going as a filmmaker. Yeah, I totally see that. I think Moonrise Kingdom is probably a turning point for him Uh because I definitely feel like the Grand Budapest Hotel fits in more with French Dispatch than his earlier movies too yeah I totally agree I'm curious too what will happen with Asteroid City his next movie because that's supposedly it's his biggest budget yet oh wow so I'm 
I'm curious if he's going to lean more into this version of Wes Anderson where it's just like highly stylized. Mm -hmm. Sometimes at the sake of the story, just to do something more creative and different, or if it's going to kind of be one of those narrative features we're used to. Tilda's in it, which I'm not going to complain about. (laughs) So in the French Dispatch, we have four stories. We have one that's this vignette called Talk of the Town with Owen Wilson leading us through this town in France. We have the concrete masterpiece, revisions to a manifesto, and the private dining room of the police commissioner. Which of these was your favorite? My favorite moment was from revisions to a manifesto when Francis McDormand and Timothy Chalamet were in bed just talking to each other. But probably my favorite story was the concrete masterpiece with Benicio Del Toro, Adrian Brody, Leah Seydoux. And I liked in there when it was kind of like a game in fitting these puzzle pieces together to me, but it was also the most emotional of them. I mean, Leah and anything, we've talked about her already from No Time Mm -hmm. to Die, but I love what she does here. And then the other characters, just, again, having these master actors working together. In this movie, we have seven Oscar winners and eight nominees. So it's stacked. Which story was your favorite? The Concrete Masterpiece was also my favorite. And I think part of the problem that I had with this movie, I guess, it's not a big problem, but just structure-wise, was that the stories, I liked them less as we went on. So I think if they were maybe switched around, I don't know if that would have helped me a little bit, but the concrete masterpiece stood out to me because Adrian Brody and Tilda Swinton, they're the best at doing Wes Anderson. Like the humor, the quickness, the wit, they just have it down. So having both of them, I think, in the same story, playing these types of characters so well, Mm -hmm. Tilda is doing some wild, like mid-Atlantic art dealer type of character who's also a journalist who's also like cosplaying Greer Garson it's wild what she's doing here I loved her Benicio also Leah June Squibb (laughs) like just a really fun group and a gripping and unique story that felt very Wes Anderson in a way Mm. that wasn't like annoying Wes Anderson like the second story which I did like parts of but that's like that student protest thing is what you think of when you think of him. Yeah, it seemed very over the top. Like, how can we do the most? And I think everyone is playing that way, to me included, Mm -hmm. except for Fran. She is the most herself. Yes, and I loved that. I love Fran, but I think I miss, like, warm Timothy. Like, my favorite Timothy is Laurie in Little Women or, like, Elio in Call Me By Your Name. Mm -hmm. So this almost, like, caricature of who people think Timothy Chalamet is, I had more trouble with. Especially, like, his name being Zeffirelli. I don't know. It was just, like, it was a lot. And he just hasn't gotten there yet. Like, Adrian Brody, for example, who just, like, knows what to do in these movies. It's very much a saturated version of him. And I thought that was fine. Like, it was, like, it wasn't bad no not bad but bringing in what we said earlier i just didn't connect to it as well i did love fran though i loved her character cremence another great name wes anderson is great at naming his characters where does that animation sequence come from that's in the private dining room oh the last one okay well are we not going to speak about the third one So I already kind of mentioned that the third one just wasn't really for me compared to the other two. 
Mm-hmm. What did you think of the private dining room of the police commissioner? This story. It was kind of a flat note to end this on. Yes, we have like the wrap up at the very end, but as a bigger story, it was fine. Honestly, I really don't remember what happened in it. <laughs> I do think Jeffrey Wright is very well suited to Wes Anderson, but the story itself, like this was one where I just, our theater was also really hot and I was starting to get really tired. <laughs> so I could feel myself kind of starting to zone out a little more. Uh huh. And this one had more trouble keeping my attention than the other two. The Saoirse Ronan cameo was fun. I did love that black and white to color mm-hmm. shot. That was really cool with her eyes. My other favorite cameo was from the bunk bed set and Sam Obisanya from Ted Lasso was in there. I was not expecting that. There are just so many people in this movie. <laughs> the thing is, like, everyone wants to work with Wes Anderson. They, mm-hmm. They're they not going to turn him down. So even for these, like, really small parts, like, if you're a huge Elizabeth Moss fan or a huge Saoirse Ronan fan, you're not going to get what you want from this movie. You're just not. They're barely in it at all. No, but I did really like Elizabeth Moss. And this is Bill Murray's eighth movie with Wes Anderson. Love to see it. And a Wes Anderson mainstay. Love him, as always. <laughs> Do you have a favorite from the ensemble or a favorite character? I think performance-wise, I would say Adrian Brody and Jeffrey Wright. Even though I didn't like that story, I thought he was great. Mm-hmm. Oh, and Tilda. What about you? Tilda's not even in it a ton either, but I would say her. I yeah, loved how great. she played that character. <laughs> It was so funny. Um, her partner, Sandro Kopp, is an artist, and he actually painted all of the paintings that the Benicio del Toro character did. Ooh, very in cool. In the movie. Mm-hmm. And would you recommend The French Dispatch? I would. I'm not going to say don't see a Wes Anderson film, but it is definitely in my lower third tier of his movies. Would you recommend this? I would. I really enjoyed watching this. It's just a sensory experience. Mm-hmm. And like it is so beautiful to look at and really fun to watch. It still has that Wes Anderson whimsy to it that I do really love. It just takes some time to adjust to. I wouldn't put it in the top half of his filmography for myself either, but I would still recommend it. And how about Oscar potential? What do you think this could be nominated for? It's hard because it got a fairly positive reception at Cannes. And then Telluride, it did not do well. But at New York, more people liked it. I'm curious what Searchlight is going to do with it. This, to me, though, is just a contender pretty much in below-the-line categories. Like costume mm-hmm. design, uh, potentially the Alexander Desplat score, which I really loved. I also want to point out that this set a pandemic era that's such an awful term record for theater average so it grossed 1.3 million from 52 cinemas in 14 u.s markets or $25,000 per location Um, the previous best three-day opening weekend average belonged to venom let there be carnage and before that black widow so it beat both of those in like Hmm. three-day average i really like that and i'm getting this info from a hollywood reporter article Love that. If they release it further and more people go see it, like it's doing really well. So Mm -hmm. maybe. What do you think? I would 
love to see it show up in cinematography. I'm really hoping that production design is a shoe-in because it's so detailed and like Dune, but in a totally different way. Your eyes are just constantly moving around. As to Searchlight, because this will be interesting too, they have The Eyes of Tammy Faye and Nightmare Alley, and I feel like how predictions have been going... Nightmare Alley is maybe the one they'll be pushing the hardest. I'm really unsure of how that movie is going to play as an Oscar movie, though. So Mm -hmm. maybe it depends on that and that reception. Yeah, I mean, I think that's possible. It's that Searchlight has such a weird slate this year. I think they're going to push Jessica still really hard for actress for Eyes of Tammy Faye. But Mm -hmm. as far as like a whole film goes, it does feel like Nightmare Alley is going to be the one. And I think acting here, it's going to be too tough because everyone is playing such a small role. Yeah. It's really hard to single out one performance. Everyone has a different favorite. Their parts are so small that it in the ensemble so huge. It's just I think it's just hard to narrow down, especially when how voting can go. And Wes Anderson has been nominated the most times in the screenplay category. So do you think he has a chance here? I think it could. I think they would really have to push it. It is like kind of esoteric. It's for a niche audience, but it is about journalism. And writers might really love that and connect with it. Mm -hmm. It's based on the model of The New Yorker, which is a very popular publication. So I can imagine like that might be something that sticks with voters. Mm-hmm. Think ahead of it. Big ones. Licorice Pizza's coming. Belfast, which we already know is like the best picture frontrunner at the moment. King Richard. Don't look up, unfortunately. The Adam McKay movie. Mass is ahead of it right now on Gold Derby. You know how we feel about that maybe and its potential. Come on, come on could happen. Mike Mills. Aaron Sorkin has being the Ricardos. It could be tough for it to break in. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? It would be for production design because I loved the city that they used and the atmospheres Mm -hmm. of all of these places. They all feel different while being in the same movie. And he has such a clear vision. It's unmistakably him. And again, it's, I think, his best because there is so much to watch. What would you give it? I agree. I would also give it Best Production Design. Adam Stockhausen, the production designer, he's worked with Wes Anderson before. Isle of Dogs, Grand Budapest Hotel, Moonrise Kingdom. I hope he gets nominated for this. The interesting thing here is that he also is the production designer for West Side Story, which I think would be Mm -hmm. funny if he ended up getting nominated for that, because I can't imagine anything in that movie looks better than this one. But that would just be such the Academy thing to do. Or he's a double nominee, which would be really cool. Yeah. Great. Well, we talked about six movies today with varying degrees of Oscar potential, I would say. I had fun talking through all of these. And if comparing October to September is any indication, we are going to have an even better November. We're just on an uptrend. Knock on wood. (laughs) (laughs) We still have another week of maybe good films left in October to see, but I'm really looking forward to what's to come. I like that we got a big mix of genres in October. I definitely agree about October versus September. My God, in a month I get licorice pizza. Oh my God. Oh, I'm so excited. 
We have Spencer coming. I get to talk forever about the power of the dog. Belfast, King Richard. I'm very, very excited for what's to come. So next time on Oscar Wilde, we'll be talking about Oscar predictions, kind of just as a marker through the season and how things have been going, how things have changed now that most of festival season has wrapped up. So I think this will be a better checkpoint than our very early Oscar predictions episode we had. I agree with that. We will not be talking about the David O. Russell movie, Canterbury Glass. We will not be talking about Blue Bayou. (laughs) (laughs) Those are behind us. We are moving forward and talking about some new categories too, doing below the line stuff. I think it'll be really fun. Just another opportunity for us to roast each other later on and for other people to roast us. Can't (laughs) complain. Well, thank you everyone for listening. If you like our show, please rate, review, and subscribe. And follow us on social media at Oscar Wilde Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks again, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye.